Well, imagine going to a wedding, and uh, these are friends of yours, and you anticipate enjoying your time there, and everything goes along as you would normally expect in a wedding until you get to the vows. And the bride and the groom turn to each other, and they take hands, and the man proceeds to say this, I will love, honor, and cherish you, and I will be faithful only to you as long as you remain within 10% of your present body weight. And she says in reply, and I will be faithful to you, and so forth as, uh, alone as long as you remain clean-shaven as you are today and as long as you bathe regularly. He says, I promise to pay the mortgage and the property taxes and to take out the garbage on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. I'll provide my own automobile, and when we have our three children, I will provide everything needed for the first and the third, except for orthodontics. And she says, I'll pay for the utilities and the groceries and the cost of maintaining the home, and I'll take the trash out on Tuesday and Thursday and Saturday. I'll provide my own automobile, and I will provide everything necessary for the second child of the three that we have and for orthodontics for all three. Now, if you heard something like that, you would laugh just as you did here because that's not what you expect to hear at a wedding. You don't expect to hear two people rehearsing carefully crafted uh, things that have been obviously put together by lawyers that are covering all the loopholes and explaining exactly what responsibilities are so that they are very clear. That's not what you hear in a wedding. Instead, what you hear when you hear vows are you hear, is that you hear unilateral promises to act on behalf of another person. It's called a covenant. Cutting me out of the Bible, marriage is a covenant, and among Christians and Jews only, we maintain this idea that covenant is a relationship between two parties who each make mutual but binding obligations that are unilateral. They say, as it's represented in the words of the wedding ceremony, I will, period. No qualifications, unilateral. And that's because marriage is not a contract, at least not among us, not among Christians. Marriage is not a contract. It's a covenant. It has contractual elements to it in that each side is stating what they will do. But it's not a contract because there's no um, obligation placed on the other person in the vows that you make. You say, I will do this. Now, marriage is not a contract. It's a covenant. And that comes out of the Bible and the Bible's teaching. And what it tells us is that when God established relationship with human beings, he established different covenants that unfolded, at least for that time period, how he would relate to them. And likewise, when God wanted human beings to experience what relationship would be with him would be like, he gave marriage as a covenant. And this passage that I want to look at for a few minutes is built on that concept. Now, you don't find marriage in the passage. It's never referred to in any direct sense, but it's meant to draw us into an understanding of what marriage really means, what it tells us about relationship with God, and what happens when we don't come through in the ways that marriage obligates us. Jesus, uh, we are told in the book of Revelation, 
wrote through the Apostle John seven letters to seven distinct literal churches that existed in the first century in uh, Asia Minor and the Roman Empire, or what is now Western Turkey. Each letter gives a diagnosis of the condition of the church, both positive and negative. Each one has an exhortation and warnings and ends with promise. And this one is no different. This one, however, is the longest of all the letters. It's the central letter, the fourth of the seven. And it has, as its very central statement, something that's easily overlooked. But of all the letters, in the very center of this letter, it says, and all the churches will know, verse 23, all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. In other words, this letter, like all of the letters, were written to all the churches. And they were not merely written to all the seven churches that are addressed. They were written to all Christian churches during the church age, we call it, between the first coming and the second coming of Christ, that we might have some grasp of what Christ thinks of the church. What are the things that he approves of? What are the things that he opposes that might go on within churches? And what are the blessings that he promises to those who faithfully follow him? This church is no different. But for the first time in this letter, he addresses clearly two separate groups of people. Within the church, there is a party of faithful people and a party of unfaithful people. We're not given a picture of how large these parties are. The only thing we might gather is that the unfaithful party is not a tiny sliver. It's large enough that it can be addressed. And the other thing we note is that the consequences given to the unfaithful party are most disastrous. And so we need to think about this and what it means. He starts the letter with um, a statement of approval. His first diagnosis is like an overall statement of the condition of the church. He's going to go down and dig deeper and be more careful in what he says. But first, he says in verse 19, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So here's a church who continues faithfully to worship and witness in the community and communities around them, and he's commending them for that. And then he drills down into one party in the church, and what he says is quite strong, beginning in verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. Now, these words point us, and they are meant to. They, they kind of draw together a specific theme that is found throughout the Old Testament. And by mentioning a specific name, the name of Jezebel, it's meant to draw a parallel between an experience that we find in the Old Testament during a period of time recorded in 2 Kings and uh, the experience of the church in Thyatira, something that is going on. He does this by referring to Jezebel, 
And it's important to understand who she was. Jezebel was a queen in the Old Testament, but she was not an Israelite. She was the wife of King Ahab, who was an Israelite king. Ahab is presented as a very weak and wavering person in his rule, and he marries a much stronger woman who is the daughter of the king of the Sidonians. And she comes into Israel and unites in uh, what essentially was some kind of treaty between the two nations, and it would be sealed with the marriage of the daughter of one of the kings. Uh, they, they unite together, but she doesn't come in as a convert to the religion of Israel. She comes in and brings with her the whole of her background, which is the worship of the Canaanite fertility god, Baal. Baal worship is the general worship that describes uh, all of the tribes in Palestine of that time, which is now that whole region called the Levant. All of those, those countries that border on the Aegean Sea and uh, go eastward from there. And... Um, she brought with her the worship of these tribes, which was the worship of Baal. Baal is a fertility god, and he has a consort in Canaanite mythology who is either his wife or his sister, or possibly both, depending on the source that you're using, who is called Ashtart. And they are the ones who are thought together to give uh, abundance to the land and to the people and to, uh, excuse me, to the people and to the land of the the flocks and herds and things like that. Now, it's evident that Jezebel is the main representative of the Old Testament of a theme that goes through the Old Testament. That is, there is a continual attempt to turn the religion of Israel into a fertility cult. The religion of Israel, as it's sometimes called, is that faith that was revealed by God on Mount Sinai when he gathered the people who were the descendants of Jacob or Israel, and he gathered them to the foot of the mountain, and there he gave the covenant, which is uh, epitomized in the Ten Commandments. And he called them into a special relationship with himself, and he gave to them an elaborate system of worship, the revealed way to worship God. God reveals in the Bible he doesn't just want to be worshipped in any way that we can come up with. He wants to be worshipped in the way he is revealed in his word. And in the Old Testament, that consisted of a massive structure that originally was a tent and later a temple, inside of which was a building with one room called the Holy Place and another behind it called the Most Holy Place. Each one had certain sacred and representative implements put. And the priesthood, the descendants of one specific person in Israel, were to offer sacrifices and offerings in the courtyard outside on behalf of the sins of the people, and the blood would be spattered on the altar, and it would be carried in once a year to the most holy place. And um, it was a very detailed way of worshiping him. That was the revealed religion that Israel was to follow. And when they moved into the land, and they uh, began to possess the land of Palestine, and they established their worship there. There were continual attempts over several hundred years for the Canaanite fertility religion to be brought into it and create what would be called a syncretistic religion, which is just a mixture of differing elements drawn from different sources to produce a religion that was neither a pure fertility religion nor the original thing that it started with, but some kind of hybrid. 
and she is the main representative of this attempt. It was during her life that there is the longest, uh, clearest attempt for to try to impose the Canaanite fertility religion on force onto the religion of Israel. Now, you need to understand this. The Hebrew religion, the religion revealed at Sinai, has one distinctive that sometimes confuses people, and that is that it completely separated sexuality from spirituality. What I mean is that the practice of the religion was completely devoid of sexuality, even to having laws that go like this. A woman during her monthly cycle was not allowed to go to public worship at the tabernacle or later at the temple. And you would say, well, what in the world is that about? That just seems uh, kind of odd and random. No, the reason was because fertility was not connected with the actions of worship unlike almost all religions that existed in the world up to that point. And there are many things like that because the Lord, the true and living God, is the God who controls fertility, but he does so sovereignly and he responds only to obedience to his commands. Fertility on religion, on the other hand, was quite different. Their view was that um, they would connect both feasting in abundance, like abundance to where you want to throw up when you're done, and sexuality together as acts of worship in a kind of sympathetic magic. Baal and his consort were in heaven, and they were to look down on the earth and see sexual acts being worked out and this feasting, and they would respond by giving the rain from heaven that would cause the crops to grow and the herds to bear and the people to be fruitful, and the rain was said to be the seed of Baal that was falling from heaven. And so they connected these two things very deeply in a way that God revealed was not appropriate to his worship. And what happens in this passage is that three elements are put together that are meant forcefully to draw our minds to that understanding. First is the name Jezebel, the name of this wicked queen in the Old Testament. The second are the words who seduces my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols, which connects those two themes that are often connected in the fertility religion in the Old Testament of feasting and sex. And the third statement that's found in verse, I think it is, 23, where it says, um, and those who commit adultery with her, verse 22, those who commit adultery with her, which is a statement that comes also from the Old Testament and its ideas. And that's what I want to focus on for a few minutes. What is it that the writer is saying? What is it that Jesus is communicating to this church that is wrong with one party within the church, so disastrously wrong that he says, I will throw her, I will throw them onto a sickbed. Excuse me, I'll throw her onto a sickbed and throw them into great tribulation, those who commit adultery with her. Now, throughout the Bible, and this is the most important thing to understand, throughout the Bible, unfaithfulness to God of any kind, whether it is simply ignoring him in your mind, being indifferent to his purposes, not worshiping him as he demands, or whether it is flagrant acts of disobedience, any kind of unfaithfulness is considered spiritual adultery. That's how it's presented. That's how it's pictured, especially in the prophets in the Old Testament. There are two passages in particular in the Old Testament that I would hesitate to read publicly. 
They are found in Jeremiah 16 and 23. And they both describe in the most drastic terms what is happening with Israel. And it, it, the idea is basically this. God is pictured as a loving groom who has found a young woman in difficulty and he has rescued her from it. He has cleaned her up, this young, pure woman. He has lavishly given her gifts and he has made her his bride. And in response, rather than returning his devotion uh, to the spectacular abundance he has given her, she goes after other lovers. The words used in the Old Testament are that she, like an unfaithful wife, spreads her blanket under every green tree in the mountains, referring to the altars of Baal that were up in the mountains where people worshipped. And she would just be there with whatever man passed by and caught her fancy. She's not a prostitute, God says, because prostitutes at least get paid. She's worse than a prostitute because she takes all of the precious and royal gifts that she has received, and she gives them freely to her lovers, picturing Israel taking all the abundance that they had received through the covenant with God as they lived in the land and giving them as gifts of sacrifice to Baal and to his priests. It's a very graphic image, and in those passages and in Hosea chapter one, chapters 1 through 3, there is this idea of how God feels about that. He feels as you would expect, like a man who has been cheated on. He feels deep sorrow and anger. He is determined to root this out and deal with it. And the wonderful story of the Old Testament is that he will not let go of his bride. He continues to pursue her and brings her into a place of discipline and restores her to himself. However, it's that image of spiritual adultery that is brought forcefully to us in this passage. What Jesus is saying to the church is that there's something that's going on that is akin to adultery in which there's, just like in Jezebel's time, a fusing or a mixing of pagan elements with the true Christian faith that Jesus came and gave to us, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, as it's called in the book of Jude. They're mixed together in such a way as to produce a hybrid, and it's a hybrid that is not the real thing. It contains elements of the real thing mixed with elements that have been brought in from foreign places. Now, let's think about these words that I read, the words to this party of the church in Thyatira. Some of the people were doing this, not all. He's going to say later, to the rest, I say, to the rest of you who do not hold to these teachings, he will say later. But he's referring to some of them who are doing this. The passage implies that the rest had not strongly enough condemned this because he begins uh, with his words, I have this against you that you tolerate this. So they had not strongly enough sought to root this out and to end this kind of teaching, these ungodly ways of thinking and apparently of living. Now he refers to a, a Jezebel, a prophetess, and we have to ask the question, is he referring to a real person in the city of Thyatira? Was there a woman who was a prophetess who was teaching something that was drawing Christians into involvement in uh, some pagan practices? And I'm not really sure of the answer to that. I personally doubt her name was Jezebel because that is the name of this distinctive queen and it's apparently being used much like uh, 
Balaam is used in the preceding passage to refer to a specific incident that is drawing parallel to it. But was there a prophetess teaching this? I don't know. However, the passage emphasis is on something that is being taught, ideas that are being spread that are understood. And so he says later, I, I, to the rest of you who don't hold to these teachings. So whether or not there was a specific person, there was teaching that was combining elements of Christian faith with elements that were foreign to it. Now, it appears that they might have been something dealing with Christian freedom. And um, that's something Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians at, Lake and, at length. And it's something that could be misused very easily and apparently was. Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians, and we'll go into this more when we come to it, about the weak and the strong. The strong are those who understand certain principles and they understand the true freedom that they have in Christ. The weak are those believers who are, have not yet understood or applied certain aspects of Christian faith and so they feel weak and their conscience is wounded when they act in certain ways. For example, Paul says, Paul himself was a Jewish man, a rabbi, a Pharisee. He kept the dietary laws very strictly, but he came to understand after he came to Christ that in his ministry and his words and by his life and his death, Christ had fulfilled the dietary laws of the Old Testament. What they pointed towards and the reason they had originally been established had run its course and God had fulfilled them in the person of Jesus. And Jesus, we are told in the Gospels, declared all foods clean. That is, he said, all foods are capable of eating as long as they are received with, uh, by the word of God, uh, his statement, and thanksgiving. Anything that you can use that is helpful to you, you can eat. And so Paul understood that, and he is in the category of the strong. He was free to eat the food the Gentiles ate. However, he knew that within the churches, particularly at that time, when many Jews had formed the initial parts of the congregation of the Christian movement, and only later had Gentiles been brought in, there were many who had a lot of scruples about dietary laws. Some of them, in his mind, were weak. They had not yet fully applied some understandings about the Christian faith. And what he says is the strong should not sin against the weak. They may feel free to eat uh, certain foods. That doesn't mean they should do it in front of or seek to force those who have scruples about it not to do it or to do it. And he, he, he extends that into other areas of life concerning drinking, observing certain days, like in the Old Testament, a calendar of worship, and things like that, that he knew he felt uh, freedom in, and yet he also knew that there was a way to use freedom, a way not to use it. It was probably in this area that someone was teaching that, listen, we Christians have freedom. After all, there's no idols in reality. There's nothing behind uh, these images that we go into pagan temples. And so if I'm invited to go there and celebrate all of the events that get celebrated in our society there in Thyatira, I feel free to do that. So they would go in and eat food sacrificed to idols. And they would go in and they would uh, engage in, participate in some way, at least by observing, the actions of fertility ritual that went on within the pagan temples. He refers to this as the deep things of Satan. 
that may be just an ironic statement in which someone has used the terms deeper things or the deep things of God. Like I once had a person tell me, I'm, uh, I, have, I know God in a way that you don't, they said to me. I'm close to God. I understand deep things about him. And so I, I, they looked down their nose at me, you know, you wouldn't understand that kind of idea that some people are talking about the deep things of God, and he says, ironically, they are really the deep things of Satan. This misuse of freedom in some way that was allowing people to go into the temples and engage in things that were beginning to mix Christianity with certain pagan ideas in the minds of people. Now, you might think that's not something we experience today. No, it is. Every attempt to use the ideas that are given by Jesus himself that are the fulfillment of the Old Testament that embody the Christian faith to fuse that with foreign concepts, foreign ways of thinking, ways of behaving that are forbidden in the Bible. Every attempt to fuse that is going to create a monstrous kind of form of religion that is not true Christianity and its spiritual adultery. That's what was going on here. Now, this is a danger to every generation, and we need to be aware of it. Here's what you need to understand. We human beings in our fallen state do not have an intuitive idea about God, understanding of God. We do not automatically, as we grow up, uh, learn to think of God rightly. If, If a person were brought up today with absolutely no outside influence to think about God, they would undoubtedly come up with some image of God that doesn't match what the Bible tells us. They might have some true elements in there, but many they wouldn't have. That is going to happen. And even if we grow up with Christian influence, even if we grow up in a Christian home and we learn certain things about God and what is true of him, and our parents picture those for us well, we are always, because of the nature of sin inside of us, going to build an understanding of God that is not fully complete the way he is, it will always contain elements that we have put there or uh, forms of his characteristics that we give greater prominence to something that needs to have prominence put beside another aspect of God's character and shaped in a certain way. What I mean is this. God designed human life such that parents become the first image of God. When an infant in the crib begins to look up and first starts to move towards consciousness, the first thing he sees are the faces of his parents. And his parents become for him that model of everything and every authority that will ever grow in life. They are the creator. They're the nurse and the doctor and the teacher and everything else. That's what he begins to see. And as a child grows up, we come to a point at age 10 to 15, somewhere in there, where we learn to abstract. That is, we separate between concrete reality and ideas that we have that are different from that, or we separate between concrete reality and a reality that is beyond our ability to experience concretely, which is what God is. We we begin to understand that when we experienced compassion from a parent, love, discipline, whatever it was, that's an aspect of what God is and what he is like. Now, left to ourselves, we're going to twist that. We're not going to make it fit together in the way that it should. And the remedy, of course, is what the Bible calls redemption. 
Redemption is God's work of restoring us to a correct understanding of who he is and restoring us inwardly to an ability to respond to him in the right way. When we trust in Christ, what God does is he gives his Holy Spirit who comes inside of us. And the Holy Spirit brings God's quality of life, which is called eternal life. Eternal life is planted within a person who trusts in Christ alone. And that becomes the um, source of overcoming life. The source that is just a seed, as it's pictured in the Bible, but it can grow up and produce a great deal of fruit. That is the first thing, the Holy Spirit, who gives eternal life. And then he gives us also his word, the Bible. The word is the source of all correct information about God. It doesn't tell us everything we want to know about everything in the life, but it, it tells us about God, his character, his nature. It illustrates it for us in the person of Jesus and the way he lived and the things that he said. And his story is then written down, the record of his life, so that we would understand who he is and what he is like. And then God gives to us other people who also share this common life, other Christians. That's the fellowship of the church. And the church and the word of God and the Holy Spirit uh, using the word of God inside of us to grow, these three things work together to allow us to grow up and understand God as we should. Now, I had a father. When I speak of my father, I'm speaking of a specific person and a specific ways, the specific ways that I related to him, the character that I understood and experienced from him. When you speak of your father, because none of you are my siblings, you're speaking of a different person. Undoubtedly, our fathers, we use the same word father to refer to them, even though they're not the same person, but they overlapped in many characteristics. They were both men, you know, I mean, and, and there's all kinds of things that go with that, but undoubtedly, they were also very different in certain ways and the way their character showed itself. We're referring to two different people, but when we're among Christians, we share a common father who has common characteristics, but the fact is, because of our background, because of the things that we learn, and because of sin, remaining sin inside of us, none of us have a complete and perfect picture, and so the goal of church life and the goal of the Christian life is to bring us all into focus so that when we worship God and when we sing to him, we're singing to the same God and we're talking about the same truths and we're experiencing the same things that God has promised to us. Now, there are some ways in which we can fuse certain ideas about God that come from the Bible and from Christian faith, and we can fuse them with ideas that are not biblical, that we somehow put together in our minds, but they don't fit. And when we do that, we're becoming unfaithful to God because we're not worshiping him as he is and as he reveals himself. Let's just think about two of those. The first has to do with the character of God. As I said, we had different fathers, but we have a common father, and our goal is to understand our common father and experience him together as he truly is with all of the characteristics that he reveals to us in the word. But I've sometimes heard people say, even within the church, my God would never send anyone to hell. My God is too good to send someone to hell. Now, there's a problem with that. The problem is that the Bible reveals with great clarity 
that God will eternally judge those who rebel against him. It presents him as, in fact, being too good to overlook rebellion, that he will judge sin, and he will judge it eternally. And so if you attempt to take an understanding about God that's foreign to the Bible, that God tolerantly accepts everyone regardless of their response to him, and you seek to mingle that with what the Bible reveals about God, you will never understand God as he truly is. You will never experience him as spiritual unfaithfulness. Failure to actively seek to understand and worship God as he truly is is spiritual adultery. Or let's think of another one that has to do with the exclusivity of God. The first commandment of the Ten Commandments is, you shall have no other gods besides me. God demands ground level, commandment number one, exclusive devotion. Now Jesus also said when he came, uh, this. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Again, there's this exclusive claim. I am the only way to know God. I am the only way to God. And many people are troubled by this exclusiveness today, and they're uncomfortable with the fact that Jesus demands our exclusive devotion and demands that he is the only way to come to God. And so what they say is, well, I think that's important for me, but other people are on a different road. They might be seeking to come to God through Buddha or through Muhammad or something like that. And after all, doesn't what they're seeking, isn't that what matters, not the road that they're on trying to get there? And yet when a person says that, they're showing a misunderstanding of two important things that the Bible reveals. One is the nature of sin. The nature of sin is that we will always create a God who's more acceptable to us in some way if we're left to our own. We will always find other routes to try to get to him in our own mind. But God himself has revealed only one way. That is through the life and death and resurrection of his only son, Jesus Christ. And so if you try to mix these two concepts, God is the exclusive God and God is the tolerant God who accepts anyone who is seeking him, even though the Bible says left to ourselves, no one will seek him. You will end up with some kind of monstrous Frankenstein-like God that you've created in your own mind who is not the true God. Consequently, when you seek to worship him, you will never experience fully all that God wants you to experience because purity and worship is experiencing God as he truly is. And to do that, you have to be on the road of understanding who God truly is. The old saying is too true. People are like the gods they worship. They become like the gods they worship. You'll never experience God in the way he's meant to be experienced. Because if you are understanding him, if your understanding of him does not match who he really is. Now, you could do this in all kinds of areas of life, and this happens within Christian churches at times. People mix in ideas or they seek to. I suppose all of us do that in our own minds, but this is picturing a church in which this is happening in a large way, and a, and a number of people are being brought in to this way of thinking, and they're apparently mixing some kind of elements of false worship with Christianity and declaring they're free to do that. And God is saying, no, you're not. I mean, you could justify the use of drugs. I've had people use that and mind-altering substances. 
as though that's something God wants you to do, even though the Bible says that God does not want you to do that. You could rewrite your sexual ethics to include all kinds of practices and behaviors that the Bible explicitly forbids, and even say that God commends those things. You could do that, but you'll end up with an understanding of God that is somehow distorted from who he truly is. That's what always happens. Now, here's what you need to understand. He's not just talking about that tendency, that tendency to which the Spirit and the Bible and the fellowship of God's people is the solution for all of us. He's talking about some group of people who have done that, and now they are propagating it, these unbiblical ideas, these ideas of which God is unworthy. And he speaks with crystal clarity. I skipped the way Jesus introduces himself when he says at the very beginning of the letter as he describes who he is, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. And as that is borne out in the passage, it becomes a God of judgment who has eyes that can see and penetrate to the very heart of people. And he knows their thoughts and their motives and their actions. And feet of bronze are feet that are able to crush all opposition against him. He presents himself as the one who has the right to rule and to judge. He can do that because of who he is. And he presents himself that way to these people. And so he gives this very strict and disastrous consequences. I will throw her onto a sickbed. I will throw those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. That evident description of what happened to the descendants of Ahab and Jezebel who were all wiped out so that their name and the things they had done would never be carried on. Yeah, what I want you to note is that the passage ends with words to the rest of the people in this church. And he gives to them words of encouragement, encouragement to remain faithful, to continue to be true to him, to obey, to persevere even in their obedience. Thank God that our acceptability to God is not dependent on having a fully, complete, perfect understanding of who he is. Because God is too great and too majestic for a human being in this life still riddled by sin. Even though we have the word of God and the spirit of God and the fellowship of the people of God, we could never fully understand who he is. The whole point of the Christian life is to fill out this understanding of God, to put into proper colors in the proper place and to see the contours of his face in the way that we ought to that's the whole goal of life, and it will never be fulfilled until we get there. And God is not speaking to us that we are sinning because we have certain understandings that are wrong. That is what the church is for. That is what our fellowship is for. And I can say after 40 years of fellowship among the people of God, having had good parents, but parents who were imperfect like all of them, from whom I gained some ideas that were good about God and some that were false, I have seen that it is only within the fellowship of God's people, through the word of God, through times of worship and learning and relying upon the Holy Spirit, that God has given me a deeper understanding of who he is. Not a complete one, but a deeper one. And drawn me deeper into that sense of joy that comes from knowing the living God.
But you must always be aware of this tendency that is, is within your heart. However, it's also sometimes unchecked in churches. Thank God, not here. Let's thank God. Oh, our gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you that so many, like myself, I know as I interact with them throughout the week, uh, they can say that it is only among your people, both here in this church and elsewhere that they have been in life, that it's only among your people that they have begun to understand who you really are so that they can submit to you as you truly are. That that required that they would accept things about you that didn't seem to fit when they first heard them or something in their mind or their heart or their spirit rebelled against it and yet they learned to see that that too is a part of your greatness and your majesty. I pray that you would help us as a church to continue down that road, to be careful, to root out all notions about you that are unworthy of you, and that our worship would be pure and undefiled. I pray this especially for the sake of the children downstairs and those babies among us spiritually who only have a dim understanding and within the family are meant to be brought along. Help us to do that in our groups, in our families. And we move through our lives.